Welcome to the Philosophy Podcast, where host and lacrosse expert Jamie Monroe will do what he does best, talk about lacrosse. Each episode will provide listeners with education, insights, stories, and lessons about the lacrosse world. We will discuss current events, coaching, philosophies, and college lacrosse recruiting. Now let's get started with your host, Jamie Monroe. The Philosophy Podcast is brought to you by Oxia Time, a cool watch company focused on university-branded watches. John Canaris is the founder of Oxia Time, and he was the goalie at Penn in the late 80s who led his team to the Final Four. John is actually best known for being the goalie that Gary Gate dunked on in the Air Gate. Oxia Time makes beautiful, Swiss-made, authentic watches whose design and quality match the essence of the universities they represent. I can attest to the quality of these watches. John hooked me up with a sweet Brown University Oxia watch, and I think it's the nicest thing I own. Initially licensed with eight Ivy League schools, Oxia keeps adding new schools each month. One of the coolest things Oxia offers is custom timepieces to commemorate championships or to celebrate storied teams. Check out the UVA Lacrosse Championship watch. It's sick. Princeton did a really nice one last year as well. Oxia even did an LSU football championship watch this year. For any teams interested in creating a custom watch this season, Oxia will upgrade it at no extra cost to a championship watch if your team wins a conference or national championship next year. For players, parents, and coaches interested in custom team watches, check them out at oxiatime.com. That's A-X-I-A-Time.com. How's it going, everybody? Really excited to welcome back Terry Foy to the Philacrosophy podcast. Terry is the CEO of Inside Lacrosse and one of my favorite guys on the planet to talk lacrosse with. Terry, how you doing, man? Hell yeah, Jamie. Uh, I am doing well. You know, Monday mornings are always that kind of combination of the fatigue of having been paying attention to lacrosse for 18 hours, two consecutive days, the prior two days, um, but also just kind of that re-energized, like, it's a typewriter. We, you know, typed out the entire week. You know, the Richmond Carolina game was the period on the week. And then you pressed and I realized that like, I hope any member of your audience who's younger than the age of like 25 knows what a typewriter is, but you send it back to the other side and you start typing again. So um, yeah, no, doing great. And, uh, and really excited to, to talk lacrosse with you on a Monday morning. It's uh, about the best way I can imagine starting the week. <laughs> It's so great to be to have lacrosse to talk about, though. I mean, we got to start with that. No doubt. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting in the sense that I feel like this thing moved in phases. Last April, May, I talked about it as if it was a sabbatical, and I'd never had one because I got my, this job at Inside Lacrosse the fall of my the fall after I graduated from college. So I've every spring I've been following lacrosse, following college and high school lacrosse. So it was kind of the first time I really felt the change of the season from from winter to summer, not in like a press box or on the sideline of a freezing cold high school game. And so in that respect, like I, I can't say it was all bad, but on the same token, I watched a ton of games from the 80s and 90s because I was just jonesing for some level of competition. And then, you know, by the end of June we saw summer recruiting lacrosse come back and then that kind of, you know, persisted through, the fall, but really it makes you realize, and obviously, you know, we were treated to the PLL and MLL bubbles at the height of summer as well, but you know, college across is different in the sense that it has 
unique storylines that we are more invested in because they're deeper, they have a longer history, and they're in many ways the hub around which the rest of the sport spokes, right? In the sense that high school players want to uh, play college lacrosse. And even when the PL got started, one of the methods that they used to organize their teams was bringing college players together from the same college. So it all genuflects toward how important this is. And this season was unique in the way that it, it got, it was such a slow build, right? On January 30th, we had two games, only one of which had a professional broadcaster stream. The following week, we were overwhelmed with four TV games, but at the same time, there were only like eight games total and a couple of them got postponed. And then the week after that, the third week, right, it was kind of like de facto week one. We had week negative one, week zero, week one. You know, there were still a bunch of teams not playing. And then this is the first week that we saw the Big Ten play. We saw uh, your boys in from, from the Hoyas play. Uh, there were a bunch of important teams that made their debut. So even though, you know, we're not going to have the Ivy League this year, and I know we're going to talk about that, and even though we still have a bunch of important teams that haven't yet played, Albany, UMass, Notre Dame, the MAC doesn't start until March 6th it does feel like there's momentum for the first time. And I will say one of the things that for me is an important indicator of audience engagement is our website traffic since, and and the inside lacrosse scoreboard is an essential part of our business. It's a a core foundation of our website. And for like four years, five years, we saw this like really substantial growth. And from 2020 to 2019, uh, we had saw, we had seen the, the growth continue, but the audience numbers had gotten so big that, of course, they were going to plateau a little bit. So we basically saw on every day, like 10% growth year over year. The lack of games meant that for the first, like I just described, four or three weeks of the season, you know, there really wasn't year over year growth compared to 2020. On Sunday, it was the first day, the 21st was the first day that we saw growth over 20, uh, in 2021, over 2020. Uh, and we were, I'm really encouraged by that. You know, obviously when Syracuse fans get to be upset about their team losing, that helps. Yeah. Um, Hopkins fans as well from the day prior, but uh, it's back. The audience is coming back and I feel like it's a really positive thing for everybody involved in the sport. Yeah, no doubt, man. So uh, give us a little state of the D1 landscape right now what are your thoughts what are some of the storylines that you're thinking about um we can talk specifically about anything you want but big picture is great too yeah i mean obviously folks react to the strength of the acc and syracuse's loss to, to army punctures that a little bit like i said notre dame hasn't made their debut but virginia and carolina are the two teams that look most impressive and then duke was the one that carried the early season expectations into the year and so the notion that you know the all four final four teams are going to come from the acc or whatever was certainly pertinent i think that it's a combination of the fact that those institutions can offer graduate student opportunities to play in a way that a lot of other places can't either because of the academic process of their grad school the ability to get into grad school or the ability to compete as a as a grad student so I think that's going to be an advantage that, you know, kind of piles on top of all of the existing advantages that we've seen at those places. The reason that they've won national championships and been a top recruiting lists over the course of the last, I don't know, 30 or 40 years. That being said, the big trend is going to be, well, similar to what we saw in college football, the uncertainty of the schedule on a week to week basis, the uncertainty of player availability for games that actually happen, and then how new opportunities to either play, right? So you think about it in the context of high points, next three games are against Duke, Virginia, and Carolina. They've always played 
two of those. Their last game was against Carolina, but they're essentially an affiliate member of the ACC now. And a big part of that is because some of the other teams that the ACC would traditionally play non-conference, be they the Big Ten or the Ivy League, they can't because the Ivy League's not playing and the Big Ten is only playing other Big Ten opponents. So there's no non-conference competition. So those teams that get to take those non-conference game opportunities now have chances for wins in ways that maybe in prior years they didn't. But then separately also, and this is when you do the top 20, you start to get to the end of the top 20 and you realize that like mid-majors are going to populate this at a volume that exceeds prior years. And so to the extent that the rankings are not an indication of NCAA tournament criteria, because they aren't, the polls, the rankings, they have nothing to do with who gets selected to the NCAA tournament, but it is an indication of who the available teams to be selected are. We don't know what the NCAA tournament selection criteria is going to be. We know that the existing criteria will not work. Now, whether or not the NCAA tells the tournament selection committee, it doesn't matter. you got to jam this round peg into the square hole. Well, maybe that'll be the way that it goes. Hopefully, they settle on something that does work. And as a result, the it's a total whiteboard in terms of who's going to get selected to fill out what I expect to be a 16 team tournament. And the last couple of at large bids are probably going to go to teams that in prior years weren't even on the bubble of consideration just on the basis of their conference profile. So, you know, whether it's the second America East team, whether it's the second NEC team, whether it's uh, the third Patriot league team, those teams are going to be in contention for NCAA tournament selection in a way that they previously hadn't been. So To me, that's kind of the big picture storyline is we don't know who's good yet. And we don't know who's going to be good at the end of the year. And we don't know that the good teams are necessarily going to have good records, both because of their strength of schedule and because of who was available to play at certain points throughout the season. And so there's just so much more uncertainty than we've ever seen before. And as we've saw in college football, you know, it manifests an exciting season. And then ultimately it ended in a 14 playoff that was very familiar to college football fans. I don't think that's going to be the case in college lacrosse. I think that the tournament field is going to be different from what we've seen in years prior, but I guess we won't know until early May. I kind of look at the, if you don't have players available, you know, that's it's similar to when that happens anyways, right. With injuries, it's, it, it maybe may happen more. I don't really look at that as a, a reason to give someone the benefit of the doubt, but I do think when your conference doesn't allow you to play other conference teams, that that makes it really, really tricky. And that is a little bit different um, where you don't actually get to prove your worth on the field against other conference teams. Let me ask you, so the big 10 started this weekend. Let me ask you, which you think is more likely. Is it more likely that the best big 10 team goes 10 and 0, the second best goes eight and two, the third best goes six and four and so on. Or is it more likely that the best team goes seven and three and the worst team goes three and seven? Basically, my question is, do you think that the final standings are going to reflect the hierarchy of the quality of the team? Or do you think that it's going to reflect how crazy this year is and the fact that sports are sports and nobody's going to go undefeated because it's hard to beat the same team twice and it's hard to play the physical grind of a Big Ten schedule? Which do you think is more likely to happen? I think there's more parity in the big parity in the big 10 than there's been. So I think that it's more likely to be seven and three, three and seven. I'm um, not predicting that exactly, but, um, but I, but I, I don't think there's going to be an undefeated team. And I, I think that, you know, I think, you know, Hopkins, we'll see how they can bounce back, but I definitely think that Maryland, Ohio state, Penn state Rutgers uh, are going to be able to beat each other. Yeah. 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 I mean, you know, 
I would shade the same, not even because of my analysis of the teams, but in any year, I would pick that, right? I just think that, again, mm-hmm. sports are sports. The outcome is never determined. I, I, I think about it in the context of, you know, Maryland looked unbeatable against, against Michigan, and then they have to turn around and go to a Penn State team that just lost, that has pride, that made it to the Final Four the last time there was a Final Four. Of course, they don't have Grenamen, but at the same time, they've got two or three bona fide offensive players that didn't put up a point against Rutgers. Penn State's going to go back to the drawing board. They're ho- they're at home in Panzer, which we know is a hard place to win, and they're getting Maryland on a short week on TV. Like the juice that the Penn State's going to bring to that game might be enough to catch a Maryland team that now thinks they might be that thinks they're better than they might be, right? And so there's just those factors, in my opinion, are always undervalued by people in your and my position and certainly by fans. And yeah. I just think that I, in aggregate, I will always bet on that, even in comparison to how good I think teams are. Totally. And uh, Coach Bobby Benson with, uh, as I said to he him, had the boys coming, huh? I was like, man, other than you winning anything, Hopkins losing is a pretty good thing. And he was like, so right. <laughs> so I was at, I was at the Hopkins uh, Ohio state game and the Loyola Virginia game. So I can talk about those in a little greater detail. If you like, um, I felt like I had a really good sense of what was going on in that Hopkins Ohio state game. Um, and then a little bit more helter skelter in the Loyola Virginia game. But, you know, my, my take on Hopkins was first and foremost, just, I think either three or four, Three or four of Ohio State's first six goals, they built a 6-1, I think, yeah, 6-1 lead somewhat. I get, I get it confused between that and Syracuse Army in terms of what the actual score was. But they built an early lead, and then they extended it to 9-2. And in that early lead, the number of times they swept to the middle of the field, swept into the teeth of the defense, and no slide came, either because the guy was out of position or because he didn't know he was supposed to go or he was just late, was – outrageous and they did settle in uh and supported each other better as the game went along so I thought that that was encouraging but on the other end of the field Ohio State I thought did a really nice job of playing to Hopkins weakness in the sense that to me when their best players are humming particularly Epstein but even Simone and Cole Williams they're guys who are dodging drawing a slide and then throwing a one pass goal so whether it's to the near the near receiver the near who can kind of catch and finish or a skip to the backside for an easy step down when I think about Hopkins offense and their success the last two years that is what I think of I think Ohio State by by virtue of being in a zone put themselves in a position where they didn't really have to react very much to Dodgers at all and it was interesting because when you think about Cornell's offense last year with Pete Milliman, I think about incredible exterior ball movement and then really good interior passing. And I just didn't see that from Hopkins. I saw instead, particularly early when the game was still being decided guys settling for shots from 12, 13, 14 yards that were easy stare downs for a goalie in Skylar Whalen who had never really played before. So, or that's not totally fair, but still you could have gotten to him early is what I was trying to say. And they just didn't do it. So I think they're correctable things for Hopkins, but I think ultimately, you know, it it was just, it was very clear why they were struggling. Yeah. It was a smart move. I mean, those uh, Epstein and William Epstein and Williams are a tough cover and you're right. Like they draw attention. It's hard to guard those guys. So I haven't seen that game. I'm, I'm, I'm interested in checking it out. 
Um, what was your take on um, on Maryland under the new offensive coordinator in Coach Benson? Yeah, so because I was at the um, Hopkins game, I wasn't able to watch it, and I haven't watched it yet, but it is number one on my list to watch this week. Um, I, talk, I, I talked to people who watched it. I talked to people who were there, and – and, and then obviously looked at highlights in the, in the box score. And so, you know, my immediate reaction is not only were they incredibly efficient and productive, um, but they got uh, Danny Maltz involved in a way that, you know, he really, I don't want to say he hadn't been, but to a level that he, he kind of hadn't been in prior years, at least with any level of consistency. And talking to Kevin Brown, who, who watched the game and, and wrote a story about it, his comment was that Bernhardt and Wisnoskis as initiators, he actually compared it to the way in which Bobby was able to benefit from the looks that Kyle Harrison and Adam Doniger were able to create for him when he was at Hopkins. Uh, so I thought that was an interesting comparison. Um, the depth of scoring stood out. Uh, the fact that they didn't start either of the fifth-year transfers, Holden or, or Brown, stood out. That was a little bit of a surprise. Um, and then, you know, talking to a couple of folks on the Michigan side, they think their problem is going to be their short stick D middies. They hope that there are some answers on the roster that they could potentially try to find some solution, but it suggested to me that they thought that Maryland did a really nice job initiating with their second and third middies, whether it was on the first or second line. And I think the box score kind of poured, uh, bore that out as well. So a game that wasn't really in doubt, I think the final was 20 to nine. And I know that Michigan made a late run. They, they got a lot of their goals late in the game. So it was uh, really, really one-sided. Um, but yeah, beyond that, I'm going to have to watch the film and figure out what else, what else to take away from it. I love watching Virginia play. How was it being at that game? Interesting because with the combination of it being Virginia's first road trip and the fact that they got off to a good start, right? Easy win over Towson. Army came back versus them, right? But they probably never felt like the game was in doubt because they got out to an early start. And you contrast it with Loyola, who played a horrible first 50 minutes against Richmond after struggling with some adversity in, in terms of uh, they basically had their starters on their first bus. Everybody else had to wait for a second bus after the first bus broke down or something like that. And they arrived basically as the game was starting on Sunday against Richmond. So I think that it was essentially what I was kind of describing in terms of the Penn state Maryland game, two teams coming in from very, very opposite footing, even though Loyola had beaten Richmond and they came out of the gate faster. Um, and I thought that that was really important because by going up four one, they showed that the offensive problems for the first 50 minutes against Richmond were not who they are. The last 10 minutes was not an anomaly. Okay. But then I think, from there, you saw either three or four instances of why it's going to be so hard to beat Virginia by anybody, including Duke and Carolina, for the rest of the year, which is you cannot relent. You cannot relent in the faceoff. You cannot relent offensively. You cannot relent in your clearing game. And you certainly cannot relent in your individual matchups, especially against Matt Moore and Peyton Cormier. Those two guys had five goals and three goals. And I want to say Moore had maybe one assisted goal, and the other four were unassisted and same for Cormier. When those guys get the ball square up their defensemen, Loyola was pretty slow to go in a lot of these instances. They're just going to get a good look. Yeah. Moore took 14 shots in order to get five goals. So I'm not saying he's a perfect player. I'm not saying it was the most efficient day, but at the same time, when Virginia went up, I believe 12, nine at the end of the third quarter and Peyton Cormier did not come out to start the fourth quarter. Charlie Bertrand did 
which number one is an indicator of their offensive depth. And number two is an indicator of the fact that you've got a guy in Cormier who you feel like can score every time you touch the ball, but you still have the luxury of going to someone else. Like that's a daunting challenge. Um, and I think the other thing that was important for Virginia to take away from this one is that Bailey Savio Loyola's faceoff guy, super highly regarded, and they won the matchup. So Pete Osala is a potential first, second, third team All-American, depending on how TD Erlen's transfer to Denver goes and some of the other aspects of this the performance this season. But he just went toe-to-toe with a guy who has a similar style to him, right? Fast, likes having the ball on his stick. The expectation was that both of them were going to be less affected by the rule change than many others. And Osala got the better of him. So, you know, you're really getting pretty far down the list in terms of what Virginia's deficiencies are before you start to get concerned. And I guess you would point to some of the defensive consistency, but at the same time, like, it's probably more scheme. It's not really personnel because I'll take Kate Sostad. I'll take Kyle Kologi. I'll take Quentin Matsui any day of the week. Certainly feel the same way about Jared Connors. I didn't really notice Ben Ware in this game, but I noticed him a lot against Towson and a little bit against Army, and he's an awesome second long stick midfielder. They're short sticks. People love John Fox. Uh, Grayson Saladay didn't have his best game, but at the same time, I thought he's a really good player. So, like, my point is Virginia has the capacity to have a really good defensive day in their glove or in their, their golf bag, and they just haven't needed it yet. So I guess my point is, like, it's just there are not very many pathways to beating Virginia. Totally. You're going to have to outscore them. I, I, I think that um, – and, and obviously win faceoffs. I think the way Virginia plays offense is a thing of beauty too. And it's only going to get better. I love Sean Kerwin's philosophies in general, and he's really kind of taken that Penn state offense um, sort of a two man side, three man side with, and and really starting to integrate all the basketball concepts that he always talks about with, with attacking on three man sides. That's kind of a box concept, but also all the off ball picking and screening and sealing and slipping um man when they start moving the ball a little bit better i mean like i think a a cormier is an incredible player i think if you move the ball a little bit quicker uh things would open up for him you know the times that he doesn't you know big quinn pointed this out on our podcast this morning he said that connor schellenberger's three assists were the only assists that virginia had despite scoring 15 goals which means they scored 12 unassisted goals could be a concern yeah it could be but i guess i mean loyola generally just tries not to slide a whole lot so it's like, I mean, they'll, they'll slide, but they really have sort of made a, made a living not sliding all that much um, and, yeah. and, and basically just kind of crowding you as much as possible, showing as much as possible. But yeah, I agree. But I, 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 would, I, would, I would just basically say, I think they should move the ball more. And if they do, then their offense will be like, if they move it like Penn State moved it, man, they, they're going to be dangerous. They got pieces. What's your take on- uh, One, on one other thing to add there. Yeah. Because I do think Loyola showed a little bit of a blueprint for how to attack their ride, and it's get the ball upfield as quickly as possible. I think that uh, basically Virginia didn't get into their 10-man against Loyola, and I think there were two reasons. The first being Loyola's long poles are really good ball handlers. So the biggest, you know, the first part of clearing the ball against Virginia is that when you get a ground ball deep in the corner and a long pole, like he's going to have, he's going to have to get away from a double team. Now, whether that's rolling back and throwing a nice, you know, pass back to the goalie or a cross field pass, 
that's the first issue. Or, and we saw Ryan McNulty, uh, Matt Hughes, and uh, Cam Wires all do this. If you can carry out of the double team, then you're setting yourself up for a pretty easy clear because you're already past two of the guys that are going to be riding. Um, but yeah, I mean, Loyola cleared 85% and they wasn't as if these were, it wasn't as if they, they disproportionately got a bunch of successful clears that were really dramatic. You would expect Virginia's ride to be particularly effective uh, when they are able to score and able to push and able to, you know, push the tempo and and their offense worked in waves. But you know, I think it kind of went the other way. I think Loyola was able to show a blueprint for how other teams can clear against Virginia. The, the primary factor is you got to get the ball out fast. So whether that means a long pull, recovering a ground ball deep in your own zone, rolling back and throwing a nice cross field pass or throwing a pass to a goalie or roll kind of splitting a double team and getting up field by virtue of their quality stick handling, which we saw Cam Wires do. We saw Matt Hughes do. We saw, of course, Ryan McNulty do. Uh, if you can do that, then you're actually ahead of two of the riders and you're going to put your kind of can create an easy clear for your team. So I feel like there were a number of factors that uh, Loyola showed in their clear that are replicatable. And I think that uh, particularly for North Carolina, Duke, Notre Dame, Syracuse potentially, although, you know, I thought that they didn't necessarily clear very well against army. There's going to be some things that can be replicated uh, in order to try to break this Virginia ride. No doubt. And I think the Virginia ride is interesting too, because you think about all these different rides, you know, we were talking about this as one of the topics that we were going to kind of chat about. Um, what makes Virginia's ride great. Isn't the scheme. It, it is the speed and athleticism of their riding attack. You know, yeah. And the intensity. And, the... Down. and so, Absolutely. You need to get it out quickly, and getting it out quickly to have is, is the key to beating any ride, really. But but this is where Virginia makes it harder because they can track you down, right. and then all of a sudden they make you make a pass or two. And once you've made a couple of passes, now they can actually ride you and start bumping their defenseman up to guard a midi and their midi up to guard you know an attackman's guy and push up the field. And but um, that that they did didn't um. Didn't Virginia write it back for a goal or two early in that game? I didn't see the whole game because I had to travel. Yeah, and and uh, they they got two goals in transition when they were making their their early comeback. They took that five four lead that they then turned into a seven four lead. They did get two goals in transition. One was off a ride, and then one was off of a face off. Um, but that ride that that uh, transition goal was one of two throughout the whole game. Yeah. Um, and and I think that uh, Loyola having cleared 85%, it wasn't as if they were lucky uh, in a lot of their clears. I would actually say it was probably the opposite, which is that they probably deserved a couple of additional successful clears. Uh, but, you know, Aaron passes went out of bounds. There were passes that should have been caught. Um, so, yep. you know, it, and Lars talked about it post game, basically just that, uh, I mean, to the point that you made, they've, the, he calls it rifling. Um, and it's basically the notion of when you, they start from the back, right? And so when a goalie gets to a guy being guarded by the defenseman, then he releases the defenseman and he can go forward. And when you are clearing quickly, it just, there isn't enough time for that sequencing to happen in order to cover guys. Let's talk one more uh, topic about, about Duke and Mikey Sowers as a storyline individual on the cross thoughts there. Duke isn't scoring a ton of goals. So he's not racking up points, but then against Mercer and Towson, he is, he's putting up six ish goals. It's just a question of, is he doing it in a way that is like what people expect? 
I think a lot of people reacted early to the notion of him not getting guarded at X. I think that's interesting, right? Giving him an opportunity to feed. But I also think that, you know, it goes the other way in the sense that he's not getting as many clean looks at the goal. Um, I thought he didn't look super explosive against Denver. I wondered how much the grass had to do with it. You and I have already spoken about that. I think that when he isn't super explosive, that's when the fact that he only weighs 160 pounds becomes a detriment because defenders can get into him and kind of make him uncomfortable physically. But I think um, the I'll be fascinated to see how they continue to develop. Dyson Williams was unavailable for the Towson game, and so as a result – Brennan O'Neill started, um, you know, it was a game that was never really in question, produced a couple highlights, both from Sowers and, and from O'Neill showed the chemistry on that behind the back goal that O'Neill scored that went really viral. So of course the, it, the, the jury is still out. I don't think that he was a transfer that they brought in in order to win games in February. I think he was a transfer that they brought in in order to win games in April and May. And I think that it's reflected in the fact that, as always, Duke is just going to continue to reinvent themselves. Yeah, no doubt. I uh, I think it's going to be fun to watch the progress. I, I do think that the way Princeton played last year opened things up for Sowers, um, even in comparison to his freshman and sophomore years, or his first few, his first three years, I guess, at Princeton. I mean, he he opened up his game like he never had in the way that they played, which, by the way, is very similar to the way Penn State runs their offense and the way Virginia is now running their offense. And just like Sowers, uh, just like Grant Ament, Sowers was up on the wings a lot and all of a sudden was able to kind of dodge and move it and have tons of space. So I, I, I think part of it was the way they played. What is the value of being on the wing as opposed to – being an X, what are the things that you, what are the benefits and what are the things that you give up by having your primary initiator square up a defender on the wing and trying to make something happen from there? Yeah, well, I mean, you kind of saw it in the way you, you referenced it earlier in the way that Denver was not really going behind and they were turning it into uh, a me against you matchup game if you want to go play Mikey Sowers behind and you're going to let him use his changes of speed and change the direction then he can come around on you with hands free and feed and all that kind of stuff when you're on the wing you actually have to play him and he can then therefore use all of his changes of speed and change the direction um also the wings are is a better feeding angle the whole time you know than behind at a certain point you get to a good angle from behind um, but when you're on the wing you kind of always have those angles uh, whether it's through the defense, whether it's throwbacks, throwing it behind or feeding somebody. Um, wings are creating better efficiencies in general to getting your sticks to the middle and you tend to have your players where you want them. Now, when you come from behind, you end up getting your stick to the middle too. I guess the difference is you don't have to really get into that physical battle of turning the corner and getting a shot off as often. I don't necessarily think uh, behind is bad. I just think that the versatility of going on the wings as well as behind and you saw it with Grant Ament, he was not always behind the net. If you watch the Penn State offense, quite often he was on the wings. And then all of a sudden they got to worry about the other matchups while you're there. So it, it creates a real distraction when you're in front of the goal rather than behind the goal where they can kind of know at least you're not going to score back there. So I think that's some of the advantages. And what about the two-handedness in terms of when you're behind the goal, you can go left or right equally. When you're on the wing, if you go too far to – GLE, then you lose your ability to make a play a little bit with whichever hand you're, you're kind of going towards. So, you know, if you're an equally two-handed player, do you lose a little bit of benefit 
by virtue of, of not being as threatening by going one direction versus the other? Or, or do you think that it's negligible because the S dodge is such an effective weapon? If you get underneath and get a step, you can still come back to your strong hand and get your stick into the middle of the field. Yeah, I think it's the latter. I think that you, you're still going to be able to dodge left or right and get your strong hand. And if you're truly two-handed, then it's just an advantage for you when you go underneath if you want to be able to rifle a, a feed through the defense that maybe a Peyton Cormier doesn't do with his backhand. I think that becomes an advantage for you. Um, but I think that in general, you know, if I had to bet on somebody scoring a goal in a one-on-one -on -one situation, I would bet – I would put place my bet on between zero and – seven yards on the wing where they can dodge to left or right and still get their strong hand and be able to make plays from there. Uh, it's a good time to bring up something that um, I saw this weekend that really bothers me. The crease within the crease and the way that the dive rule incentivizes defenders to push divers farther into the crease so as to land in the inside crease and disallow the goal. The best example was Aiden Olmstead fed, I believe, Kevin Lindley, this beautiful oh, yeah. behind the back feed on extra man. And they, I, I don't recall which Virginia defender it was, but he just, I'm pretty sure, pushed Lindley farther into the crease. They took the goal off the board. They would have made a 5-1 Loyola, and Loyola didn't convert. They threw the ball away on a two-man advantage the next, you know, sequence. So – it worked. It was the right strategy. I was always opposed to the crease within the crease. I, agree. I think that adding a line to the field is in your, in and of itself, you're, you're admitting defeat that there's some flaw in this. I don't know what got us to this point where we need an additional line, but I mean, it's a mess. I think it's I agree. In, in John Rabo, the head coach at Wesley and echoed that point on Twitter. And I don't know what, is the best step to get ourselves out of it other than just going back to the situation that we had in 2017. I mean, why can't you just allow there to be a dive? And if you, you know, you think it was making contact with the goalie and it was diving at the goalie then I mean, just call it like the pros, man. That's what I think. I think it's, yeah. I think it's stupid the way, the way it's being officiated. I agree with you completely. The dive's a great play. I don't think it results in more injuries than, you know, we're just not seeing that. We haven't seen it. Everybody knows that we've been through this a million times. Let them play. It's too much fun. I don't understand why there's so much unwillingness to interpret in, in intent slash initiation, meaning that like contact with the goalie is disallowed. The goal will be disallowed if the diver initiated it. If the goalie initiated contact, then the goal can be allowed. And I don't really understand why it needs to be more simple or why it needs to be more complicated than that, because it doesn't matter where the player lands. It like that. It, if you, if you can avoid contact and goal as the diver, why are you punished? If you land closer to the goal? Totally agree. With That's you. just a better dive. And if they make a mistake on that judgment, then so be it. There's a million mistakes to get made on judgments. I mean, I think that's a pretty easy one. I do. I agree with you. Including making a mistake on whether or not a guy actually landed on the line inside the crease. Yeah. Which is a really hard call to make. The line inside the line. Yeah, I was trying to figure out why that goal was disallowed. I did I did catch that one. It was a beautiful play. It was a sport, yeah. you know, sports center top 10 play that they disallowed uh, for what I think is no good reason. But properly. It was a properly adjudicated so. call, but yeah. reflected a bad rule. Yeah. All right, let's let's um let's 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 flip the page here and talk a little bit about the Ivy League. And 
their unwillingness to find a solution to allow their athletes to play spring sports other than local competition. So Brown can play a game against Providence College in Bryant, but they can't play Harvard. I don't know. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Brown grad. I'm very disappointed in it. I think it showed uh, zero administrative resiliency to try to do what's in the best interest of, of, of their students. Yeah. Um, and so I'm disappointed with it. And I think people say, well, I think it's going to impact Ivy league recruiting down the line. I'm not sure if I think that's going to be the case. Cause I think kids are still going to want to go to Ivy league schools, but I think it's going to impact how, how alumni and, and how these a generation of players feel about their school because they were abandoned when everybody else uh, made an effort. I think that's well said. I think the place I would start is with respect to the announcement that spring sport competition will not be hosted by the Ivy league and won't play a tournament, no automatic qualifiers to NCAA, NCAA competition. I expected all that. I think that that was reflective of reflected in Princeton's choice last fall, Harvard's choice throughout the year, Yale's choice on February 1st and Cornell's choice a week later. I was most surprised that they broke from their prior precedent to allow competition to occur because I think a big part of what has led to this is the notion of wanting to adhere to precedent and not wanting to open yourself up to making future exceptions on the basis of making an exception here. So I just find it really strange that they bore the brunt of all of this negative publicity for a year or not a year, because obviously nobody blamed them for the decision last spring, but in the fall, in the fall and winter, and then again in the spring, but then just gave this sliver of opportunity, like you said, to Penn to be able to play Villanova Drexel, St. Joe's and Brown to play Providence and Bryant. But, but, but in so doing abandoned to the president that they had already set, which is that like, we're, we're, we're going to do this unanimously. Yeah. You, well, you have four schools that aren't doing it. So you're not doing it unanimously. I thought that was very bizarre. It is because um, you're basically like, you know, giving you a, a taste of it. And what's the difference? Like, why not just, why not just play? If you're, if you're, yeah, okay I mean, totally. Bryant and Providence, why are you not okay with just playing your 12 or 14 game schedule like everybody else and just following the protocols? So, you know, I, I do think that there is, to the extent that there's another side of the coin that isn't getting the attention that it deserves, I think within the league office, there is a desire to play. I think that they are deferential to the presidents as every league office is and should be. And I think that when the president, when it comes to the presidents, their fear is the perception of unfairness on campus. So instead of isolating or evaluating certain activities on a risk individualized risk risk basis, the choice has been by and large to consider every student activity to be equivalent in terms of the risk for increasing the threat of transmission of COVID-19 and as a result being bad citizens of your community. And that's just, to the folks who say they aren't adhering to the science, I think that they have a good argument there. It is far less risky for a lacrosse team to play a game than it is for an orchestra to practice on the basis of what we know about or a, or, or a theater yeah. uh, drama group to, to, to rehearse in, in, in terms of what we know about how this disease spreads. And I think that there's rightful frustration at that. 
but on the other hand, you know, I, I, I do see the logic in if we're telling our world renowned cancer researchers that they cannot attend a conference at Johns Hopkins because our campus is entirely locked down, how can we then allow our student athletes to go play a game? I mean, I get it. It's a tough, it's a hard thing to solve. And we've seen every other conference make the other decision. So to me, the most interesting aspect of it is the financial incentive, right? Like the Ivy League is the only conference where their members don't have a financial incentive to play. They have a really strong financial disincentive not to play. And so, you know, to the notion, do they know better than everybody? Well, I don't think they necessarily know better than everybody, but I do think that they're incentivized differently. And I think that you saw the incentives manifest in this decision. But to the point that you made about recruiting, I mean, I, I find that almost laughable. Like, number one, I don't think there's a stronger endorsement for the experience of being an Ivy League lacrosse player than 40 Yale players making the decision to withdraw and delay the start of their professional lives by a year in order to get that experience, right? So if they didn't care about being an Ivy League lacrosse player and they cared equivalently about being a college lacrosse player, then they would have gone to school this spring. They would have graduated on time and they would have used their additional year of eligibility to get a master's somewhere else, as we've seen a bunch of players do. But no, they chose to withdraw and they're going to basically be a senior in college a year later than they otherwise would have been, yep. right? To me, that's a really strong endorsement for the value of being an Ivy League lacrosse player. And you saw players do it all across the league. And I think ultimately, like, there just isn't enough reason to go to it. I think there are four schools that are going to benefit. I think you can make a similar argument for the power of the alumni network and the degree at Duke, Notre Dame, Georgetown, and Johns Hopkins. But I think for every other school, there is a gap between this, what the seven Ivy Leagues offer versus what every other school offers, even the high achieving academic ones, such that I don't think that kids who could have and would have gone to an Ivy League school are now going to choose to go somewhere else simply because the Ivy League canceled two seasons in a row. I just don't, I don't see that happening. Yeah. It might happen on isolated cases, but not very often. Totally agree. Um, yeah, it's sad. I feel bad for those kids. And, and, and I think back to your whole point of like, you know, the logic behind it, the logic went out the window for me when they actually allowed local competition. I don't understand it. Totally. That's what I'm saying. The, the precedent and the logic were, were abandoned by that choice. And it just totally doesn't. Like, oh, it's it's just, the, yeah. the, the, the benefit is so soft. I mean, yeah, it is feasible that Penn could play five games, which I'm told is the minimum threshold in order to get at large consideration of the NCAA tournament qualify for the NCAA tournament via those means and win the national championship. That is possible. Is it going to happen? We've already seen Cornell say that they are not going to try to play this spring. So do they gain enough from their members? Does the league gain enough from their members by saying, we are allowing you to do this Yeah, I don't in see order to. It's a slap in the face is what it is. It is. It's saying you can play a little bit, but we're not going to actually let you play. Right. So therefore, the science went out the window when they when they're letting them practice and they're going to let them play. So, anyways, um, let's talk a little bit about you. You sort of referenced this earlier when you're talking about transfers and in the in the schools that might benefit from this and the Ivy League and all that. But let's talk a little bit about um, college across recruiting, transfers, transfer portal, the big picture of all that, the trickle down. And then uh, let's tie it in a little bit to what you got going on with Inside the Cross. You guys are doing some great stuff with the, your events in the summer and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that the recruiting picture is still very unclear. I, I think that with the extension of the dead period to May 31st, I was the, 
the most notable aspect of that was I don't recall in the prior extensions of the dead period that they said they were going to try to make the, to end the dead period on June one. So that is an indicator of the likelihood I would have bet prior to last week's news that the dead period was going to be extended through June 30th and then end on July 1st or July 8th, whatever the case may be. And I would have bet that for a variety of reasons. Um, but now I, I'm slightly less likely to bet it. Uh, I think it's possible that it starts June 1st. And I think that's tremendously impactful for the class of 2022, because I think we're going to end up seeing about 850 commits in the class of 2021. And I think that that'll compare to about a thousand commits in the class of 2020. And I think that 15% reduction reflects a lack of what's the opposite of buyer's remorse. The, what is the, what is non-buyer's remorse? Um, I think, I think last summer 21s were negatively affected by the lack of D1 coaches on the sidelines sitting next to their peers watching someone and saying, if I don't take him, he's going to, and then I'm going to have to play against him for four years. And I can't allow that to happen. So I really only want to bring 12 guys on campus this spring, or I'm sorry, this fall, or I'm sorry, in the class of 21, but I'm going to bring 13 because I can't afford not to have him. Now, did that account for the entirety of the 15% reduction? Probably not. I think that obviously the additional, the, the, the likelihood of additional years being used of eligibility being used by current college players had a significant effect on that reduction, but it had some effect and it will be replicated for the 22s where we've already seen more than 600 players commit in this class. If college coaches are not on the sideline next summer, because there are three things that happen with in-person recruiting that do not happen via video. Number one, you're at the behest of the event schedule. And sometimes there aren't going to be using this coming summer as an example, 23 games going on. So you're either going to do nothing or you're going to go watch 22 games and every recruiter worth of salt is going to go watch 22s. So that's the first thing that happens. So you're going to actually watch them in a way that you won't if you only rely on video. Number two is the community aspect of it. When everybody's in their office or at their house watching video, you don't know what your rival is doing. But when you're sitting next to him and someone's performing right in front of you, then you know that he saw it, right? So it's like, when it's just being done via video, I don't know that if I don't recruit him, he will. But when we're all sitting next to each other and we're watching the same player, then you're going to see it, right? You're, so it's, it's discoverability, it's competition. And the last element is the attributes that have inherent value watching live versus watching via video. And you and I have spoken a lot about this over, over time. It is so much easier to track outcomes when you watch via video, but it is harder to get a sense of the physical attributes. So that's particularly size and speed or explosiveness. And so to the extent that players are not productive, do not bring about outcomes, but are good athletic prospects, they get punished when recruiting is limited to, lot, to video evaluation. And so as a result, I think those three factors mean that if there's recruiting on if there's live recruiting this summer the there are going to be more 22s that get recruited to division one opportunities than would otherwise be the case sure. so i mean i think that's kind of the big unknown right now is is that going to happen for the class of 22 and if it does then how big does the group end up getting and then how does it manifest in terms of roster size once they arrive on campus right and then obviously the subsequent effect is how does that affect the class of 2023 in terms of the amount of opportunities that are available 
what the best method is to go about finding those opportunities and how people end up pursuing it. So that's my current outlook on the situation and we'll see how it manifests. It is interesting. And I think those three factors, I think you're dead on. And I think they actually kind of all work together. So I, I, I usually characterize it as video gives you on-demand viewing. You're just not going to watch the team that you might've had to watch if there was nothing else to watch. And all of a sudden you find that kid. And then all of a sudden you look over and there's three of your rivals watching the same game, doing the same thing you're doing. And then the athletes stock goes up and all of a sudden that's where the community aspect of this whole thing is like, everyone's talking about this one athlete. What a beast. Totally. Uh, da, 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 da. Um, and, um, and yeah. And so, um, so you said there's a 15% reduction from the class of 2020 to 21. Obviously it's, you know, 21s aren't done yet. Um, but that's, what I, that's roughly what I expect it to be. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, it is. Um, it is interesting. I was talking to Lars on a podcast last week and, and he was kind of hoping that at least they would go quiet, you know? So if it's not a dead period, it's a quiet period. It means that they can work events and then it's just like normal recruiting. So, yeah, um, I, I kind of expect that there's going to be, it, it's going to turn quiet. Don't you? I don't think lacrosse people can be the ones setting expectations. I think that if, uh, if you're really close with someone in the basketball community and that's what they expect, then sure. Um, but this is going to be a decision led by men's basketball coaches. So, and I'm not, I don't have friends yeah. that are division one basketball coaches. So I, I don't know. Yeah. Well, I don't either, but I, I do think it's, um, it's tough. It's tough financially on these, on these assistant coaches. That's for sure. They need to be able to work. You know, they're just not going to be able to make ends meet. <laughs> um, you mentioned earlier about roster sizes and I want to get your opinion on how these inflated roster sizes are going to continue to impact recruiting and, and, and frankly, the student athlete experience. I think they go hand in hand and I think you can take one of two approaches. Either you bring in fewer guys in order to decrease the likelihood of a negative student athlete experience and lose guys to the transfer portal, or you bring in the same or greater number in anticipation that you're going to have guys leave because of a negative student athlete experience. Right. So, you know, I think that you've seen some programs that bring in, 15 to 22, sometimes 25 players in a class. And they do it because they know it's a bulwark against attrition. And the biggest thing that the transfer portal has done is reduce the friction of departures. The, there was always a built-in friction for a guy transferring out. Number one, you had to build up the courage to tell your coach you wanted to leave. And then you had to wait for your coach to tell the uh, compliance officer that you were leaving and you needed to get your waiver. And then you needed to recruit yourself or have your club coach or your high school coach recruit on your behalf incrementally in the same way that you do when you're in high school. Now you don't have to worry of the courage to tell your coach. You can go straight to the athletic administrator and within minutes or however many days it takes, not very long, your name is publicly available to every other coach in your sport that you're interested in other opportunities. So in that setting or in that context, you're just going to see more departures or more considered departures. And with the reduced friction that the transfer portal allows in terms of guys departing, if I were a division one coach, I would probably bring in as large or larger rosters as prior years, because I would be concerned of the number of guys leaving my program and wanting to maintain that level risk having more guys have a negative experience because once you can't do the things that you feel like you need to in order to make your team better well then you'd risk having everybody have a less positive experience than they otherwise would 
Yeah. Interesting. Um, talk to us a little bit about IL and your events and what you guys got going on. Um, you've got some awesome individual stuff that you've been doing and you got your team events. Um, and I feel like the rankings combined with your events are really putting you guys in a position where a lot of people want to get seen at your events. Yeah. So we've got two boys club team tournaments set for this summer. One very early. It's June 28th to the 30th at DE Turf, which is a great complex. Um, we're excited about that. And then we've got our second boys club team tournament, uh, the Isle Invitational, July 12th to the 14th in uh, Howard County, Maryland, two parks there that we're very familiar with, Troy Park and Blandaire. And both are, you know, pretty robust. The second session is sold out. The first session still has some availability, but not much. And we're excited for what that means. Obviously, that first one being so early um, might butt up against some high school seasons that are going to go later. So we understand that there's some limitations there. But I also think there's opportunity on the individual side uh, early in the summer as well because of the staggered end to a lot of these high school seasons. We haven't made decisions yet with respect to what we're going to do on the individual event side from a dates standpoint. Um, But we've had a lot of internal conversations about what dates do make sense and what love, you know, how that makes sense within the market, realizing that there was a lot of activity in that space over the course of the last year. So we're really excited about what we're going to be able to do. Our ILID experience last fall was uh, hugely successful, really exceeded my personal expectations, not knowing what we would be able to execute on roughly a month turnaround. And, uh, you know, ultimately it kind of reflected what we had done uh, in prior events, which is, I think the benefit of our media platform is built awareness on a short time frame. So, you know, I think we've proven to ourselves and to constituents that if we have a good idea, we can pull it off. And uh, last year, in addition to the ILID experience, it was our lead eight concept, which was at August 31st, um, eight boys teams, everybody played three games led to a championship. And, and this year we're doing it on the girls side as well. So really excited for what that entails in terms of being able to stream the eight best club teams in each uh, boys and girls class of 2023. We're fired up for what it means going forward. So great, man. I mean, I feel like you guys at IL, you know, create, run great events. You're super organized. Obviously you got their rankings that everybody wants. I mean, I can't tell you how many people ask me, like, how do you get ranked, you know, by inside the cross? And I'm like, well, you know, you got to be good enough. And, and I think you guys do such a good job of keeping that fair in the sense that you're just trying to, you're trying to see everybody, but clearly um, people, people want to get ranked. They want to go to your events, college coaches, want their players ranked. They want to go to your events and it just gives you guys an advantage. And I feel like you've done it in a really nice job of basically not using it to your advantage too much, but being able to build a really nice business and ultimately great opportunities for kids to play. Yeah. I mean, I'm really glad to hear you say that. Obviously it was a tremendous concern in 2014 when we entered this space in the first place. And truthfully, like, you know, one of the aspects of it was we felt like we could operate in a way that I don't want to say it didn't set a new standard, but, but met and elevated the already stand established standard in the space. Right. So, you know, providing an an event that is safe, making sure that there are the proper number of athletic trainers and water where there should be water and all that sort of stuff. And obviously that was never a bigger deal than this past year. Um, The fact that whether it was working with local and state departments of health in order to set standards for COVID protocol that were acceptable and allowed the event to occur. And then in order to be in communities that were 
not at high risk for spreading the disease. You know, that was a big part of why we chose to host where we hosted and when we hosted and, and then just functionally being able to pull them off, whether it was officials or teams or scheduling or whatever the case may be. So I'm really proud of what our group accomplished. The way in which obviously we can utilize our media platform to support our events. I don't need to tout that. It's obvious. Our events market themselves because the content that we create at our events is the marketing, right? And we're always going to create that content because it's what we do. So as a result, I choose to focus in conversations like this on the approach that we take to the other aspects of event operation, right? And it's not simply about the decisions that you make in the front end in terms of what you're going to invest in, in, in executing a good event. It's also about what I said at the outset, which is having a good idea. Don't plop something down because the market will bear it come to the table with a concept 